HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Union Beer Distributors. For more information, visit unionbeerdist.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni from Jimmy's Number 43 and the Good Beer Seal. Today is Tuesday, October 17th, 2017. We have a special guest joining us today, all the way from London, beer writer Pete Brown. Hello. How are you, Pete? All right, listen to that. <laughs> all right. I didn't realize there were that many people in here. <laughs> you know, it's a live studio, man. And uh, we'll be talking about your new book, Miracle Brew. Yeah. So you're in town for that, and I know you've hit all the other radio shows, Ferment <laughs> About It, Steal This Beer. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I love doing radio. It's great. I've got a good face for radio, as the old joke goes. Um, and I, I'm over here for about 10 days uh, promoting the book. Really excited. This is my eighth book, and it's the first time I've had a North American uh, publicity tour to do. Uh, and it's kind of like a dream come true for me. So well, thank that's you. That's great. And that's what we're <laughs> going to talk about today. And Jason Saylor, our, our ultimate New York State ingredient brewer at Strong Road Brewery. How's it going? Welcome, Jimmy? man. So, Jason, it's uh, Rye Week, New York. Oh, Something yeah. Something new. Yep. Yeah, we got uh, uh, New York Rye Week mainly uh, putting on by uh, the distilleries uh, and celebrating the new Empire uh, Rye Whiskey that is being uh, debuted this week. Um, but, uh, you know, we, as a New York State ingredient uh, brewery, we, uh, we've done some of our, of our own rye stuff with uh, the local grains, New York Craft Malt. Uh, Tor Oshner and uh, w- uh, Willet Hoppin Grain. Um, so we're you know we're 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 trying to partake as much as possible and and, and focus and show what what's out there in terms of uh, New York rye. That's exciting. And Thursday we'll be at your place tasting some of your your rye beers. Yeah, yeah. We've got a uh, we've got a little uh, kind of rye takeover going on at the brewery. We have a, a rye. Belgian Strong uh, from us, as well as a um, that features rye malt. We also have a, a stout that was uh, aged in rye barrels, and then we're also showcasing uh, 
a um, rye amber ale from uh, Fifth Hammer. Chris uh, Kuzmi, all right. Yeah, Mr. Kuzmi. That's great. So, yeah, it should be exciting. Uh, that starts at around 6 p.m., so on Thursday. It's a really great tie-in because, you know, it's, it's rye week. You're, you're making rye beers. And, you know, Pete, we're really going to talk about your, your book tonight, Miracle Brew. And, you know, you broke, you broke down uh, beer into categories. So it's not – in the intro, I love it. You said most – People in the old days thought beer was made of chemicals. Yeah, in, yeah. in a big factory. Yeah, I, I find that uh, you know when I go around the place uh, talking to people about beer and say what is it made from, and people don't know, and uh, it's bizarre. In fact, since the book was published just just two weeks ago in the UK, uh, there's a, a, a beer industry campaign called the Beer for That. There's a beer for that, and they did a survey and they were asking people about ingredients and provenance, and no surprises, 88% of people said. It's very important to know what's in my food and drink, where it comes from, why it's there, additives, all that kind of thing. And then they said, cool, yeah, okay, so what are the ingredients of beer? And only 22% of people uh, (laughs) were able to name what's in beer. And the whole chemicals thing, you know, a lot of macro beer gets produced in big factories. And and the book was really inspired by, excuse me, um, one big macro brand in the UK that ran a campaign saying, by the way, you might think of, obviously not in these words, but you might think of us as a cheap, crappy lager, but we, we only brew using 100% British barley. And I saw that ad and went, oh, okay, I'm still not going to drink the beer, but I, <laughs> I, I think more of it now than I, than I used to. And the, the core ingredients, the big fans of that beer, started complaining to the brewery, saying, this beer doesn't taste as good now you've started putting grass in it. Can you go back to making it out of chemicals like you always used to? <laughs> So, so big beer drinkers think that beer is made out of chemicals, and some of them are okay with that. I just thought that was a bit weird. So you, you broke down your book. So Miracle Brew, hops, barley, water, and yeast. You break it down to the, the ingredients. The four ingredients, yeah. And and Miracle- you, you really went deep on this. I mean, I, I yeah. honestly, I, I read the, the full malt chapter. I started the water chapter, and then that was it. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my, but I'm going to read the whole book. But my, my 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 approach was to put aside everything I thought I knew about the ingredients. I, you know, I've, I've, never, I've never really brewed myself. So I, you know, I'm a commenter on the industry rather than a brewer. Uh, and I decided that I would uh, put, a, put to one side everything I thought I knew. And I was right to do that because a lot of stuff that I thought I knew turned out to be wrong. Uh, and I was approaching it very logically going, okay, so this is why we do this and that's why that happens. And every time I had a question that, or, or something in the, in the reading that I didn't understand, I would go to a, a master brewer uh, or two who I knew and asked them and a few times in that chapter they went oh I don't know never thought of it like that before that's really interesting so I, I realized that just by coming from a very logical kind of naive approach I was I was asking some questions that even brewers themselves didn't know that's great and, and Jason you know I mean let's, let's start with the malt chapter I mean f- for you you're doing things with, with malt New York ingredients that most other guys aren't uh, yeah I mean we're 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 doing about 95% New York malt in all of our beers. Um, we're, you know, really focused on working with the, the new uh, kind of crop of uh, malt houses that have uh, popped up in the last five years. And, um, you know, we're really, most of what we're getting right now is uh, the base grain uh, for the for the beers. Um, the specialties just aren't there yet in terms of what we're actually uh, looking for for our for our um, our beers, um, but you know it's coming along. Uh, new roasters are coming online, and they're going to be start playing around with them. 
and will you know kind of be the test bed for that for those grains coming through and and for all of the you know um, all of the everything that's coming through New York. We're really trying to be kind of that that get go to uh, brewery that that place that you know utilizes these ingredients and 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 tries to you know be that 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 sounding board for them um you know playing with new roasted grains playing with uh new grain varieties maybe it's you know they're getting uh mm. kale or something else that's not a normal thing and they're trying to see how it was uh we talked to you know Ted Holly at uh New York Craft Malt and uh cuz we hadn't we did there was no flaked corn in the state there's plenty of corn in New York but no flaked corn so um, and he just came through, and, and there's going to be uh, flaked corn now. So we can play around with that for our cream ale and stuff like that. So we're really trying to push it. So, Pete, you know, as you wrote the book, you know, trying to explain to people, you know, how beer is made, you know, Jason can talk about the new mall facilities and, and, and the specialty grains that are being grown in New York. But, you know, what is malt? It's, um, I mean, th- this, was, this was going back to first principles for me. And, and the way I tried to understand it, was, uh, you know, to make any alcoholic drink, you need a source of fermentable sugar. And we know this, but thinking about it from a sort of abstract way, and fruit offers its fermentable sugars up very easily. Grain tries a lot harder to keep its sugars to itself. And so if we want to ferment something out of grain, we have to try much harder than if you try and ferment something out of fruit. Fruit, you just let it rot, and then the yeast does, it, does, does the job itself. Grain, we have to help the yeast. And the fascinating thing I... Uh, thought about this was that we figured out how to activate the enzymes in grains to convert their starch to sugar about 8,000 years ago. We only discovered enzymes and what they were and what they did about 180 years ago. So so somehow we were able to control and manipulate enzymes without even knowing what the hell they were or, or that they even existed. And that's what malting is. You know, you, you, you take barley, uh, it, the, the sugar is stored in barley in a way that yeast cannot ferment it and we trick the barley into surrendering its sugar so that yeast can go to work on it and it's a i think it's just such an incredible process a miraculous process that that we managed to figure out it still blows my mind i mean when yeah like i you bring it up now but i think about this fairly often it's just like what these people went through and what they did when they first started when this all started happening for the first time is like where did that even come like this the, the thought process and exactly. what was going on it it's still yeah it's it's awesome so there's there's this whole uh kind of origin story of beer that sounds like it makes sense which is oh i guess some guys in in the levant thousands of years ago gathered some grain and they uh uh they they left it out and it got wet and so the grain was moist and the yeast came in and fermented it to beer and someone said oh no the grain's turned into this mush oh oh actually it tastes nice and it makes me feel good <laughs> and there have been experiments that show that that could not have happened that definitely did not happen the grain had to be malted before even even if it was even if it was an accident the, the first ever brew the grain would still have to have been malted before then for, for that to happen so it's like how how long did it take people to figure that out that you had to do that yeah. and what were they trying to do and what were they thinking when they were when they were kind of okay? I guess maybe I'll lay it out flat and let it dry, and then I guess I'll wet it, and then I'll dry it again, and then I'll wet it again. And now that the seed rootlets coming through and shoots, okay, now I'll dry it. And f- how did it must have taken thousands of years to figure out? So the first beer, yeah. still figuring that one out. Yeah, but I really, I the, the chapter on malt, I really, I did read the whole thing, and you kind of took us through all that. Um, 
I don't understand it. I mean, do you, Jason? I mean, I've seen, you know, we've been upstate Hudson Valley Malt, uh, Dennis Neisel, and, you know, he's doing it the old way. He's, he's shoveling the yeah. malt and doing small yeah, batches, and he's still learning how to do Four it. Four malting uh, processes. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I understand it, uh, you know, as much as, uh, you know, kind of the next brewer, but it's, it's you know, it's, there's, a lot, there's a lot to it, and, um, you know, especially for the, the New York, uh, you know, growers, it's, it's, an, it's, it's a revitalized process. So people are starting mm. to have figure out how it has to work here. Um, you know, it works different ways and, and, you know, I mean, the malting process is the same, but our grains are different, uh, than the grains grown in Mm. Canada or England, uh, or anywhere. This is a really interesting point that I came across talking to maltsters is Mm. that for a long time, uh, because malting, you know, the, 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 the way you kiln a malt Mm -hmm. has such a dramatic effect on the flavor, you know, from, from a lager malt through to a, a, a chocolate or, uh, coffee malt for a for a really dark beer. There's this assumption that the malting gives you all of the character, and that the grain itself doesn't really matter. And and what you're proving, uh, and what other people have have shown, is that actually where the grain is grown and the variety, oh, yeah. and the way it's kept, and the and the quality of the grain makes a huge difference before you even get to the malting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because the the, the maltsters <coughs> are are one part of the process. You know, there's the farmers, the maltsters, and the brewers. Um, without great malt, we can't make good beer or great beer. Uh, without great grain, the monster can't great, mm. make great malt. And so, you know, what we've done here in New York is we've, since there was no brewing uh, malt for forever, uh, for a long time, um, the we've had to figure out what varieties work. And some varieties just don't, mm. whether whether it's, you know, uh, susceptible to pests or mold or downy mildew mm. or not downy mildew, sorry. Um, you know, uh, fusarium headlight and all these different, uh, things. I mean, I was talking about the hops as well, but every, uh, the malt, like all these things, if it, does it have too much protein? Is it's this, um, because most of these grain farmers have been commodity farmers. They've been, they've been growing feed for, cattle or or whatever or it's something that is just they were trying to bulk it up yeah and now Co- cover crops yeah cover like so now it's just now it's like okay we're actually making like we're supposed to make really good seed so that it can then be malted so they're now having to relearn processes yeah. and all this stuff and figure out okay this variety works this variety doesn't and also all those things you're talking about which uh which a farmer and a maltster has to take into account um changes Depending on where you are, right. so so the first ever named uh, variety in the UK was a barley called Chevalier, mm. and it grew in Norfolk. And Norfolk's got great terroir for 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 malting barley, and everyone went, "Oh, the Chevalier barley is great! It's brilliant." Okay, let's plant it all over the UK. Yeah. And when it was planted mm. everywhere else, it was awful. Mm. <laughs> it didn't work at all because you planted it in different soil. Yeah. The sunlight, the rainfall was all different. Uh, the ambient temperature was different, and it it was perfect because it was grown in that one particular place. Yeah, yeah, and that's a huge. I mean, in New York State, you Cheers. got. Cheers. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Cheers. Uh, J- Jason, just to jump in, so now t- talking about malts, you know, tell us about this beer. Yeah, so this is um, this is Erie to Hudson. Uh, this is our version of a New York ESB. Um, we use uh, pale malt uh, with a little bit of a. Uh, caramel malt, a uh, couple different ter- caramel malts, and um, a touch of uh, 
uh, roasted barley um, just to kind of give this back end uh, character to it. Um, and, uh, you know, some pretty simple hops, um, you know, fermented, uh, you know, nice and, you know, 68 to 70, uh, kind of stress our, or get our Scottish ale yeast, uh, strain to kind of give some, uh, esters. Um, but yeah, just trying to go for, uh, something that is, is reminiscent, not exactly the same because it's not going to be exactly the same. We're not going to create a true ESV, but we're trying to go for something that's, reminiscent and and something that we can we could at least kind of put in that plane um you know it's just about it's a little um, on the higher end it's about five and a half percent um but just a nice balanced malty uh good bitterness um but not aggressive in any character it's got those levels of flavor to it that you can detect from the different malts um potentially each of the different malts that you described could have been the same variety of barley before it got to the maltster. Oh, yeah. And then, so then the, the way the maltsters treated that malt, it's like, okay, here's your pale malt, here's your chocolate malt, here's your whatever. And and you can you can taste the layers of, of cool. the different varieties that are in there. Uh, it just gives it that depth and depth and depth. Thanks. That's great, man. We're off to a great start here. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Cheers. In 1996, Sheehan Family Companies, formerly L. Knife & Son, acquired Union Beer Distributors, which was originally located on Union Avenue in Brooklyn. Union Beer has since expanded to its present location alongside the English Kills Canal in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. It has grown dramatically in the last decade as the primary distributor of Anheuser-Busch products for Brooklyn and parts of Queens through the hiring and development of the best people in the industry. In 2003, Union Beer acquired a powerful catalog of specialty brands, which immediately positioned them as the craft beer supplier to accounts in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx, Staten Island, and Long Island. Union perpetually tweaks their portfolio to maintain the highest level of stylistic breadth with the most coveted brands available. Through the highest possible level of service, outstanding salesmanship of the ultimate lineup of brands, and a paramount focus on education at all levels, Union Beer has solidified its position as the only source for the best selection of beers in the seven counties of southeastern New York. For more information, visit unionbeerdist.com. Whiskey and wine. Hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey, we got Pete Brown. His new book's out, Miracle Brew. I'm a big fan of Pete Brown. He's my favorite English beer and cider writer. Thank you very much. I carried much. around your, uh, your your cider book for a few years every time I met a cider maker. Um, so we're talking about uh, Jason's beer, ESB. So is ESB a style, Pete? It is now. But in the UK, <laughs> it's. Uh, I mean, this is what I love about beer and the way beer develops. Uh, ESB is the name of a beer that was brewed by Fuller's in, in London. It, it, extra spe- it was Fuller's Extra Special Bitter. It was just, you know, the name they gave this one beer. And it's such a good beer that American brewers looking to emulate British beer styles basically brewed versions of it and expanded it and turned it into a style and i can't remember which awards i think it might have been the world beer awards and uh when they came up with the style guidelines for esb 
they based it on Fuller's because Fuller's is the ESB. You know, it's arguably the only real ESB. And when Fuller's entered Fuller's ESB to the same competition two years later, uh, their beer was rejected for being not to style. <laughs> <laughs> Things change. So um, on that note, like you, in your book, you talk about the heyday of pale ale, and you're, you're referencing colors and malts. You know, what, 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 what was the heyday of pale ale, and what was that pale ale? Well, I always like to try and tie things back to the context in, in which we drink. I, I'm not a great technical expert on, on beer and brewing, I have to admit. Um, but for me, it's all about why things happened and who was drinking and what, and what was going on. And what you get with pale ale is... Um, it became popular. Uh, it was. It was. It became popular thanks to technology, uh, allowing us to kind of have, great, have greater control over the malting process. So you could produce these paler malts, and just as those beers were being perfected, glass became cheap and affordable for people uh, to use. And so suddenly we were drinking out of glassware instead of pewter tankards, and we could see what we were drinking. And at that point, uh, beers like Porter, which was the big, strong, hugely popular beer. Uh, before pale ale came along, people were adding all sorts of crap to porter to, and because you couldn't see it, you didn't know. People would add iron filings to it to give it a head. They would add poison to it to give it bitterness <laughs> in in low doses. I've got a book from eighteen eighteen which lists all the different uh, things that people were putting into beer, and suddenly you've got pale ale in a glass, and you can see literally uh, what's in the beer. And it became very fashionable. And this was at the height of the British Empire, uh, the height of Queen Victoria's reign, the, the Great Exhibition of 1851. Britain was on top of the world. And in Burton-on-Trent, we'd created this beautiful pale ale, which somehow tasted better than pale ale brewed anywhere else. And it conquered the world. It was you know, Bass Pale Ale was the world's first ever uh, multinational brand. Mm. Um, and it was propagated by the East India Company, the world's first uh, global corporation. And... Uh, and Britain literally ruled the world, and that was the taste of it. Uh, and uh, it was kind of an accident of different things coming together, really. So let's go. The next chapter in your book is about water. You mentioned Burton-on-Trent. Mm. Give us an overview of water. You said that uh, really what's in our glass is only water. Yeah, we talk about... The, uh, there's an ad for... Uh, is it is an ad for... Um, uh, for Miller Lite at the moment that's talking about the ingredients of beer. that said this beer contains, you know, malt and rice and whatever hops and stuff and and i tried to I, it's a confusing sort of rabbit hole to go down because beer the things that beer is made of is not the same as the things that's in your glass so we say beer is made of hops and and barley well yes it is but there's no hops and barley in this glass there there are compounds extracted from hops there are flavor compounds extracted from barley uh, there's there, there may be some residual yeast in here but usually we get flavor compounds and alcohol that the yeast has created but really what you've got in your glass is 95 96% water and about you know 5% alcohol um, and that's it so water is the only ingredient that's still in the glass when it's a finished beer if that makes any sense do you ever think of that of it that way jason i mean yeah i mean <laughs> yeah water is water is a huge uh, component and thankfully here in uh you know new york we have uh, great water coming from uh from upstate uh and the you know the reservoirs up there um, so we we don't have to, you know, in New York, you have a very kind of baseline water that you don't have to manipulate if you don't want to. Um, you can, if you want, 
to, you know, you can add uh, salts and gypsum and all these other things to, you know, maybe mimic the water of Burton-on-Trent or, um, you know, of uh, of Pilsen and like other uh, Munich or something like that. Some some place that has like London water, like you like you can mm. try to mimic these things by building and taking away and manipulating the water, um, you know, for us. Uh, we are very much, you know, using New York ingredients. We're very much okay. Let's utilize our water and let's see what we're what we're getting out of this, and let's bring that into the beer and make that part of the uh, showcase of what our of our beers I have. So, what styles work best with if you just don't treat New New York water at all? What what kind of styles does it favor? I mean, you lighter beers like you can have a very crisp, uh, clean beer. Um, mm. You know, it's, it's a very soft water. Uh, there's not a lot of minerals. Um, so yeah, I mean, for us, we do, we do a little bit of everything and we've found success, uh, from everything from our, our, you know, we've been doing a little bit more manipulation of water, uh, recently for our lighter beers. Um, uh, but our stouts, uh, do really well. Mm. Um, you know, yeah, it, I think it just depends on, um, you know, for me, I think that it's a blank slate, and you can do yeah. really well with with it. Uh, you know, you might just want to accent certain things and do certain things here and there uh, to uh, kind of raise it up just a little bit. Pete, so again, in your book, so the, the two two areas that are interesting: Burton on Trent water and the water in Pilsen. Yeah, check. Give us a little overview. They're the two counterpoints to me. Um, uh, they're kind of the opposites. So. Um, yeah, when, when, if you think of water as just water, it's, it's obviously not. And and I think the romance of this for me is that when water falls as rain, it's H2O with a little bit of carbonic acid. And by the time water is pulled from a well or a spring or an aquifer, it's no longer that. Mm-hmm. It has pH, uh, it has hardness or softness, and it has uh, mineral ions within it. And they all come from the land through which you know the, the water falls as rain flows through that land and is pulled out. So water for me is the ultimate terroir ingredient, uh, and and I describe it in the book as land taste. And mm. literally, the the brewing water you get is the taste of the land, and so it varies massively depending on the soil type and the geology of, of where you are. So the geology in Pilsen in the Czech Republic uh, produces incredibly soft water which takes on almost nothing from the land around it uh, and is just, a, as you say, it's a blank slate on which you can brew beautiful lagers. The water in Burton-on-Trent is full of uh, minerals, especially gypsum, calcium sulfate. Uh, if you try to bring a Pilsen lager with Burton water, the hot bitterness would be incredibly harsh and astringent. It would be a really unpleasant drink. Uh, if you try to bring a, a Burton pale ale in Pilsen, it's going to not taste right it's going to be kind of bland and stuff so you you brew a pale ale a hoppy pale ale with burton water and it's bright and the hops stand out and the bitterness is is rounded uh and the water's doing all that and and that's why burton had this reputation for the best pale ale in the world and for a long time they had no idea they just thought there's something about there's something about this place where we, where we brew pale ale here it just works better yeah i mean it's it's uh i mean i'm interested in that because water is the biggest component and it's so important all this important and yet it, it you know we as a society not necessarily brewers treat our water horribly yeah so many so yeah. many times it's it's just it's thrown in and we can't use i mean you know down here we're in brackish water and so you wouldn't necessarily have be able to use that anyways no. but it's just people just like 
don't think about it. And this, then like, you know, it's, well, it's Pete, what about you? You said that. So with, based on the success of Basile, Burton on Trent, people start bur- Burtonization of yeah. water. I mean, before that happened and it's, it's kind of a sad story in a way, not really, not for the beer drinker, but certainly for Burton on Trent, it's a sad story. Um, but Burton became the center of brewing science, the global center of brewing science. And, and what, what those brewing scientists did was try to pinpoint what made Burton so special. And in the end, in, in, the, in the 19th century, they said, we've cracked it. It's the minerality of the water. And here's the mineral composition of Burton water. Now, at this point, London brewers who wanted to brew pale ale could not brew that pale ale in London. They had to open satellite breweries in Burton-on-Trent, hmm. 140 miles away, and then ship their beers back from Burton to London. And as soon as the, 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 the properties of Burton water were identified, in London they could just add those salts to their water and recreate Burton water anywhere in the world. Hmm. And when that happened, all the brewers in Burton-on-Trent just disappeared, just closed down. And Burton's now this strange donut-shaped town with kind of a, a, a mall in the middle with a huge car park where all the breweries used to be and then houses and shops around it. And it's just kind of a very sad, faded town. Hmm. And it's ironic for me that I talk to brewers in the United States and they're like, oh, man, you know... Uh, I make my IPA, I burtonize my water. I would love to go to Burton-on-Trent and see the, the home of this famous water. Yeah. You really don't want to. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm a passionate defender of Burton, but I've seen people turn up at Burton ready to go, okay, I'm in the home of Pale Ale. Show me the sights. And you do, and they're like, oh, <laughs> I'm just wasting my money. And does Burtonization mean anything to you? Yeah, I mean, we, you know... I understand it as a concept and, you know, for, for us, we're really, we're not Burtonizing any of our water. We're not, you know, London, we're not, we're not changing the water to meet any uh, specific, uh, you know, uh, city or. That kind of missed the point of what you're doing, wouldn't it? Right, right. So, you know, we do, we'll adjust it every once in a while just to kind of accent some things, but we're, you know, (coughs) excuse me, um, really not really not kind of uh, playing with it too much because I do want to see what, you know, New York water is and mm. how that makes a New York beer, um, you know, and then, you know, go from there. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, it seems in your chapter, though, you, you, you do end up leaning towards the idea of not tampering with the water and trying to create a... a like a local style of beer. Yeah, I mean, it depends on where you are. This is why I'm really interested in what in what, in what you're doing because uh, you you can't go against what your water tells you, and and your local water will influence the beer styles that work mm. or don't work in the in the area where you're brewing. And you know, Pilsen Water gave us Pilsen Lager, uh, Burton Water gave us right. India Pale L. You know, what's New York Water going to give us? Then maybe there's a beer style that works with the water profile here that works better than anywhere else right and that's and it's kind of one of the things i've wanted to try to push not that we'll ever create anything new or unique but to create something that is of the place and and Mm. and part of where we're from you know so many people do adjust the water to replicate certain things that it's you know i want people to you know not just us but other places to really utilize those waters and and ingredients local ingredients to Hopefully, you know, further the uh, beer landscape. You know, and Jason, in in New York, Pete, in the 19th century, New York State was one of the great hop centers in the country. And there were a lot of breweries in in New York City. Was there a typical style that was being made 
in New York City then? Oh man, that's <laughs> <laughs> Jason's question. Oh, shoot, I don't that that the I don't New know. York I, guy. I, yeah, I, Brooklyn. And I'm not gonna be able. To, yeah, I'm not gonna be able to answer that one. I I I wish I could. I yeah, sorry. I don't know that. <laughs> that's your homework. Yeah, that's well, then my we'll homework. Come. Thursday that's night will be a strong brewery for the rye beer tasting. I'll tell you all about it Thursday. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And and talking about your book tour, Pete. So you've already been on Ferment about it, our our, our friend show. Yeah. You steal this beer. You know wh- what else is on your tour? You must be having some fun. Yeah. So tomorrow I'm going to Boston, um, and I'm spending a bit of time there, going up into Vermont, uh, heading to uh, Hill Farmstead, and then. Um, I'm going from there to Toronto. There's a Cascades Festival on Saturday in Toronto. I think the biggest Cascade Festival outside the UK. So yeah. that's going to be interesting. Uh, another bit of stuff there. You'll probably see uh, Steve Beaumont, right? Yes. You know Steve, yes. yeah. Steve and I will be doing a, a book signing together on the Saturday afternoon. Uh, then an event with uh, Henderson Brewing in Toronto on Sunday. Then back to Boston, a bit more stuff there. And then back home next Tuesday. Are there, so this are there is any just... of the Boston breweries that you're dying to try the beer or you're big fans of? I mean, I don't, I'm not able to keep up to date with what's new uh, and what's happening. But I've been writing about beer for 15 years. So, you know, I think, I think whenever you come into a, a, a scene, whether it's music or, or, or beer or, or whatever, your early preferences are fixed. You know, and so for me, and it might not be the sort of hippest names to drop now, but but you know, brewers like Sam Adams and Harpoon helped shape the the beer universe for yeah. me. That uh, they may have been superseded by small and more nimbler, more experimental brewers now, but for me, they're still the big names. You know, and I'm, I'm very excited to go and see them. Jason, what are some Boston breweries that he should check out? Boston, uh, what? Uh, Trillium. Trillium and... Oh, of um, course, I didn't realize they were there. Uh, Night Owl, Night Owl, I think, yeah. Um, Go north of Boston, Notch Brewing. Notch, He's doing a lot yeah. of Czech-style beers. I haven't done too much of uh, Boston stuff. I don't know. I haven't even tried Trillium that much, so... Mystic make... Brewing. And tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow night, I'm doing an event with Aeronaut Brewing. Oh, okay. yeah, yes. in Somerville, Mass. I'm very yeah. excited about yeah. that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we did a show there a couple of years ago. That would be fun. All right, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. Like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. Hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey, check us out, heritageradionetwork.org. Become a member. There's a lot of member perks. And the holidays are coming up, so there'll be some the membership drives. But there's so many great shows. In fact, Ferment About It, the other beer show, had Pete on yesterday. So uh, cheers to them. Cheers to Mary and Chris. So, uh, Jason, this next beer we're drinking. Yeah, yeah. So this is uh, this is our, our, our rye week. Uh, this is a rye strong Belgian ale, uh, 7%. Um, you know, just, uh, we've just started kind of playing around with the yeast character. Uh, we were very much, uh, focused on Scottish ale yeast strain, uh, for all of our beers. Uh, and we've just tried to introduce the Saison yeast strain. So this is, uh, our, 
our first uh, kind of Belgian strong ale uh, that fo- that has about fifteen to thirteen percent thirteen percent rye uh, in it. Um, New York rye, all New York beer. Um, yeah, just you know, a lot of like uh, Belgian characters. Uh, you know that that uh, that nice kind of uh, banana and uh, a little bit of a uh, clove and uh, just a nice kind of. Uh, you know, sweet malt character. The rye comes through a little spicy, peppery. So, Jason, um, since, since it's a Belgian style, then that we can talk about yeast, right? The next yes. <laughs> chapter. Yeah, it's all, yeah. Why is that? Everyone's like, we 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 had two other beers. We talked about water and malt, and now because it's Belgian, we're going to talk about yeast. Yeah, it's I, I, I think we've I think all of us who are into beer now kind of post Michael Jackson. Uh, and the work that he did in popularizing Belgian beer, uh, we just kind of take for granted that Belgian beer is more eccentric. Uh, it went on a different path than beer did in the rest of the rest of the world, and I never really knew why, and I never really asked why, I never really thought about why, and then I had to address that uh, for this book, and it goes back to the work that uh, Louis Pasteur and Emil Hansen at Carlsberg did in the 1870s and 1880s to isolate single-strain yeasts. And, and that was a massive innovation in the history of brewing because once you had... I hate saying the word control because no-one controls yeast. Yeast, <laughs> yeast does what the hell it likes. Uh, but once we understood yeast and we could kind of breed it in laboratory conditions and get the same yeast and pitch this, exactly the same yeast again and again and again suddenly a brewer could create beers where all the flavours in the beer were flavours that they had designed and put there. Mm-hmm. Uh, there. There wasn't the random element that the yeast could have introduced. And that was great for big mainstream brewing. This is what gave birth to macro brewing, basically. Um, but you had to have um, big investment to get the equipment that Pasteur and Hansen were using, which meant you had to have big, urbanised target audiences. And so in, in, in London, in New York, in, in, in big brewers could kind of do that. Now, Belgian brewing was much more rural. And uh, the Belgians said, well, we can't afford this big equipment. We can't afford to do these kind of... This so we'll just... We'll deliberately... And it, this, it was the Trappist monasteries who led this charge, said, we'll go the other way and deliberately create a Belgian style which is not about cleanliness and precision and repeatability that that retains this kind of countryside wildness to so it. So that was a conscious decision on their part. Absolutely. This is the earliest, it's about 100 that. years ago. The Trappist said, we need to, we need to decide hmm. quick what Belgian beer is because Heineken's over the border churning out this stuff that everyone's going crazy for. Carlsberg's at the road doing the same thing. We're going to be crushed by them because we can't emulate them. So we need to do something different. And that's where this Belgian spicy wildness comes from. It was a deliberate attempt to preserve those traditions rather than use industry to, to ride over them. That, that's a great explanation. Yeah. Cheers, man. <laughs> now I get I, it. I, knew that I, I, I learned all that about a year ago. So. And then, Jason, what, what did you just pour, an Allagash? Uh, yeah, we just uh, poured Allagash triple. Triple. Um, yeah, I'm... Can't, so how does the triple fit in, in, into your explanation of the Belgian yeast? So it's got that kind of spiciness. Um, it's, uh, it retains that... I mean, this is not, for me, the defining thing about a triple, but it, it, it does have something... What you, what you get with... Uh, I guess just, just to continue the previous point is what you get with the lager is you want the yeast to uh, ferment the sugar into alcohol and you want the yeast to have a fairly minimal contribution to flavour. 
you know, the yeast is there doing two jobs. It's it, fermentation creates flavor compounds and it and it creates alcohol. Uh, you know, and a, a, a Heineken or a Carlsberg yeast is is, create, is having minimal flavor impact, and a Belgian yeast is doing a lot of flavor stuff as well. So you mentioned the kind of on the last beer the, the sort of clovey and mm. bananary notes. I never realised again until I started researching this book but that those notes were created by the yeast. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was really surprised to learn that. Yeah, yeah. Just, I mean, depending on how, how, you know, depending on the yeast strain, depending on temperature, depending on pitching rates, depending on so many, you know, variables. Um, and you can really stress certain things and uh, pull back on others. Uh, it's, you know, it's... That's I mean you know to go back to your original question that's why people when people talk about yeast that they go to the Belgians because it's the most it's the most expressive out of all mm-hmm. of the, the the strains that we're dealing with so it's 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 a great it's a great way to play and learn about it. This is why I keep coming back to Belgian beer. You know I go off on flights of fancy where I <laughs> I want more and more hops or I want more and more sour or this that and the other. But at the end of the day you always come back to Belgian styles because. They have these exotic elements, but they're all held in balance with each other. And the, the, the things that you get from the yeast go perfectly well and are enhanced by and enhance in turn what you're getting from the malt. And, and you know, the hops are playing a role, but that's much more muted in the in the whole balance of yeah. things. And I just love the balance that you get in Belgian beers. Interesting. Okay. Um, and and I, for, I think for a lot of people, balance is a dirty word at the moment. We want extreme. We want mm. big. And, and or sour, or sour, but but sour and big and hop, it can also be balanced. You know, if you think about, <laughs> yeah. I show my age when I talk about this because I say like you know think about a whole a, a big Wi-Fi system with a graphic equalizer, <laughs> and millions go, what is a graphic equalizer? <laughs> but when you got all these all these dials kind of controlling the nature of the sound that's coming out of your music system, they can be in balance and all down low at the bottom, yeah. and they can be in balance. All at the top as well, you know. Balance doesn't mean bland; it just means that everything's working yeah. together. That's across all. I mean, yeah. We, we, we for what we try to do at Strong Up, we try to create. I like to create, try to balanced beers. Uh, sometimes, you know, we we. I try to, I, you know, sometimes say we do like no frills beers. It's, you know, we try to create this really nice kind of cohesion between the malt, the hops, the mm. water, the yeast. All of this stuff kind of coming together so that we're creating these just u- unique beers for the region, for what we're doing, uh, but just really just drinkable and nice and um, easy. We do play around on, and push the hops. We do play around and push the malts sometimes. But, you know, for the for the majority of it, I just, you know, I want something that I can just drink, you know, go to a pub and drink a pint, you know, a bunch of pints. Like that's, that's what I want. And that's yeah. what I've always, I try to strive for in, in most of our beers. Um, so yeah, balance is, balance is, balance is key. Yeah. Yeah. And all those four ingredients all have a role to play. Yeah. I think that's what really came out of this book for me is that each one of them is doing some heavy lifting and we just think it's hops and it's not. It's all <laughs> well, let's go to hops. There's, there's, I know Justin brought in a bunch of samples. There's a, Jack's Abbey House Lager, nah. Jason's Jason's going for a, one of those funky cans. You know, yeah. all these cans have the same. It's like the same artist does them. <laughs> it's like street art on on a can. And I'm like, what brewery is that from? This is a half acre, half acre, half acre tuna extra. Pale. Which is actually one. It's one of my favorite American breweries right now. That's really? a that's a brave move. Calling a pale ale tuna, <laughs> in terms of what I'm what I'm about to expect from the from the flavor of it. I've actually I've I've heard I've had this beer described as an ESB, talking about ESBs. Yeah. 
Wait, ESB or ESP? It's extra. Is it ESP? Or it's or? A, yeah, or what do they call it? Anyways, half acre tuna. Extra, so right, right extra, away, right on the EPA, nose, there's the hops. So. This is like the new American EPA. hop beer. EPA. Maybe it's a pale ale, extra pale ale that I like a lot. That's kind of been my go-to style yeah. this, this year. Um, I'm, glad, I'm glad. Thank you, Justin, mm. for bringing this. I wanted Thanks, Pete Justin. to try this. But this is like the quintessential now beer of you know, New York to me. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's interesting to hear. I love coming over here because... My, my my first my first beer trip to America was was the first time I tasted what we would now all think of as an IPA, um, and it blew my mind. It was it was like the first time I tasted an authentic Indian curry. I I, I felt like <laughs> oh, up to now I've been tasting in black and white, and now I'm tasting in color. So what it, was it? Um, do you know what the the brand is not what it used to be? It was Bridgeport Pale Ale out of Portland, Oregon. Uh, and I went back there last year and it broke my heart. But uh, <laughs> moving on from that. Uh, but, you know, and it, also our, our palates move on and our expectations move on. And what was mind-blowingly hoppy 10, 15 years ago is is not anymore. Not even 10, 15 years. I mean, it, like, yeah, five, I mean, five years, the, the, the hop landscape has completely changed. You know, so much of what's going on in the, the current, you know, uh, trends of uh, IPAs is the juicy uh, New England or Northeast yeah. style stuff. It's just and, and you know, there's there's, again, becoming a divide. So some people love it. Some people hate it. There's there's mm. factions and it's 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 crazy. And it's 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 really cool and a really interesting time right now for, uh, you know, U.S. I mean, not even U.S., it's. It's oh, all it's over. All over. I went to Brazil, and I, I the first beer I had in Brazil like uh, a couple months ago was a New England style IPA from one of the breweries down there. Mm. It's crazy. But the uh, the first time I've seriously considered resigning as a beer writer <laughs> was uh, a few weeks ago. When you got the review that I'm writing, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> was when when someone described someone someone separated IPAs into New England IPA and old school IPA. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, I, not- <laughs> I, I don't want to be part of this anymore. <laughs> well, you know, moving a little bit forward from that, like what I like is like this beer, the half acre beer. I've been drinking half acre f- for months, loving it. That, you know, certain that new hoppiness has, has been what I've been drinking hmm. today, uh, starting with your beer, Strong Rope, the, the more balanced, you know, ESB, pale ale type. And then going to Allagash Triple, um, my whole palate's reset. And, yeah. and th- this hoppy beard just doesn't taste the same. And no. I, I actually want to go back to that Allagash Triple right now. Mm. So wh- have you thought about that, how, how your palate changes and, and how we perceive, you know, these different flavors, you know, based on our ex- expectations and, and, you know, what we're used to? Yeah, I mean, it, it changes all the time, doesn't it? And th- these dramatic kind of flourishes that can wow you one day just don't the next. And to, to kind of slightly take your question in a slightly different way. Um, I spend a lot of time thinking about context uh, because we've all had that thing where, you know, so so I spent last night, uh, yesterday evening at Brooklyn Brewery, um, when Garrett Oliver presents one of his experimental uh, Black Ops beers and talks you through it, you can taste every single nuance and... and, and he's got the gift. ...to it uh, when he's talking <laughs> you through it. Now, I can take that bottle, same bottle of beer home sit in front of the TV, pour it into a glass. And even though I'm trying to focus on everything that I remember Garrett saying, I can no longer taste the stuff that was there when he 
said it. Um, and I've read stuff about how, you know, y- your palate is fresher in the morning. So whenever I'm judging a beer competition, we start tasting at 9.30 a.m. Because if you're tasting at 4.30 p.m., you're not tasting the same stuff. Your, your palate's... And, and it's, it's difficult when you go across different styles like we've been doing now that everything you've had before influences yeah. your perception of the flavour you, you've got right in front of you. Yeah, I mean, also, I mean, ideally we'd be pouring, you know, washing each glass <laughs> and stuff, but, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's... it's That's a, it's, Thursday night at Strong Rope. Yeah, we'll yeah. wash every glass. And for me, it's about progressions. Like, if, if, if I'm having a night of drinking, which is often, you know, I'll usually start with something lighter, but then near the end, I, I want, like, the bigger IPA yeah. or a bigger Belgian beer to finish me off. The The... the, the, the Worst, well, it's a high quality problem. Let's be honest, but but the, the problem I sometimes end up getting getting stuck with is you go into a bar and you see a lot of these big beers with big flavors, and you think, okay, I'm going to stay here until ten thirty, and that <laughs> beer there is the one I'm going to finish on. Yeah. So I'm now going to work my way up to that beer, working back from that beer, and so you get the big ten thirty beer. You go, yep, yeah, that was well planned. This is good. And then your friend bursts into the bar and says, "Hey, I've just won this amazing <laughs> award for my beer. The drinks are on me." And you're like. Damn it! I'm already, I'm already <laughs> on the big guys. Where do I go from here? We've got suddenly I've got another two hours of drinking ahead of me. Uh, last thing, I'm, 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 I love British beer culture. I, I love the way I've so many listeners and, and and friends who are from England are able to talk about beer in a way that Americans don't. Um, you want to say anything about that? I, I, that's that's interesting that you say that. I, I I'd be curious. To it's like you your pint that. is your national pastime, or yeah, something. yeah. Because I, I see it the other way, of course. And you're right. We talk about it in different ways. I find the American way of talking about beer incredibly analytical, um, and we have to uh, we have to categorize everything. We have to have okay. We've got ABV right now. Let's have IBU now. Let's have you know. And let, what other scales can we come up with to to describe this beer and to categorize it? define it we we're having a conversation yesterday about um about session beer and you know you, you it, over here you've got this what this big struggle to define what what is a session beer Let, we need to define it in terms of style and abv now the whole concept of a session beer is uh, come out of the, the british pub and the way people drink in britain now we go for a session no one in britain has ever felt the need to define what a session beer is it's just a beer that you can have a few pints of. It's a beer that when you finish one pint, you want another one. And that's it. Uh, so so for, we have got this thing about, you know, you, you go to drink four or five pints of beer in order to be in the pub, in order to be with your friends. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's what beer does. That's what beer facilitates. And then another question, uh, pub closing hours. You know, in New York, we're lucky. Many bars can stay open until oh, 4 a.m. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I absolutely Not that I'm there at 4, but just the fact that you can is yeah. just wonderful. But d- d- what time do pubs close in, in London? Well, it just, it, well, I'd say just, this is 10 years ago now. We had a new licensing act. Uh, pubs used to have to close at 11 p.m., uh, and the reason I had to close at 11 p.m. in 2005 was so that the munition workers in World War One would turn up for work the following morning. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's like maybe the regulations are overdue a kind of review, perhaps. <laughs> Just saying. And then they, they loosen it up? Uh, they loosened it up. What's happened is the vast majority of pubs have continued to close at 11 uh, some pubs stay out a bit later. Uh, someone aggregated it all and worked out the average. So since pubs have been able to potentially stay open for as long as they want, the av- on average, pubs stay open 20 minutes longer than they used to. Huh. 
because we've got into that habit. We just that's that's the thing. The worst thing about it is that when pubs closed at eleven, there was this whole ritual of at ten to eleven, the pub rang for last orders. So everyone surged to the bar, get their last drink, you know, if it's Friday night, your last two drinks, cause, and then everyone gets thrown out on the street at the same time, and it's total carnage and chaos. And, 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 you know, and then the bell goes at 11, and that's it, you, you're, you're done. And paradoxically, since the licensing hours have been relaxed, and you're thinking, well, you know, I don't have to rush to the bar to get my pint, uh, because I can sit here drinking, I mean, go home when we want. They've stopped doing the ringing the bell thing. And so you're sitting there in a pub at 10 to 11, gets to 11 o'clock, you, five past 11, you're thinking, I'll just go and get one more. And they go, no, we're closed. It's like, well, <laughs> why didn't you ring the damn bell? You know, the, the irony is that when you used to ring the bell, we all knew that we had mm. to get for the last trick at 10 to and that you were closing at 11. Now we don't know what time you close. You're not telling <laughs> us. <laughs> you're not yeah. ringing the bell anymore. So it's got a little bit weird. Well, cheers, man. A little bit of dose cheers. of Pete Brown. I'm, I'm really... Proud to meet you again, beer and cider writer. Uh, next week, Cider Week, New York, and uh, you know we'll, we'll be doing a lot of cider shows as well. But thanks so much for coming on. You want to say Absolutely. anything else about you? you got your book tour, Boston, Toronto. Uh, just please buy it. Uh, it's <laughs> let's let's go, let's go to the chase. Uh, I'm really really proud of this book. It's my it's my fourth book specifically about beer I've written what I love about beer is it's so universal and so uh, omnipresent that as a non-fiction writer which is what I consider myself you know I've written travel books about beer I've written history books about beer now I'm writing a nature book about beer uh, and I really want it to be appreciated in in that vein and I'm hugely oh, what's you you, uh, you use a term for the four beer ingredients at the beginning of your book like weeds and oh yes, what do you say? Beer, beer is made from uh, grass, weeds, fungus, and water. Yeah, I love <laughs> That's that. That's basically one. what it is. And, then, and Jason, <laughs> uh, last plug for your your Rye Week event. Yeah, come out Thursday to the brewery, uh, six p.m. We'll have uh, three rye beers and. Really uh, showcase what uh, Rise All right, New York Rye is all about. And that's a whole other show talking about you know what, what some brewers are resistant to using rye. But it's, it's a great New York grain. So yeah, totally. that's something for next time. Uh, a couple of shout-outs, again, with Rye Week. Uh, our good friends at New York Distilling are hosting the majority of the events this weekend, ryeweek.com, including a big pig roast on Sunday. If uh, you want a $5 off discount, you can use the Jimmy Pick code at ryeweek.com. And our event for Cider Week is next week, Cider Feast, October 28th at the Brooklyn Kitchen. Go to jimmysnumber43.com. We've got some great cider makers, including Tom Oliver from the UK, Steve Wood, a bunch of others coming in that night. In closing, I'd like to thank our sponsors at Union Beer Distributors who have helped to bring this podcast to you tonight. Thanks to Pete and Jason for joining me here on the Heritage Radio Network. Big shout-out to our producer, Justin Kennedy, and engineer, David Tadashore. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Woo. Cheers. Yeah. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.